around the next corner, in the next relationship, maybe in the next meditation retreat. And this longing for fulfillment, which of course goes hand in hand with this sense of being separated from fulfillment, is really about feeling separated from life. It's very strange. If we really reflect on it, it's very strange how we can take ourselves to be separate from life. There may be moments walking here in the gardens, listening to crows, feeling the sunshine, lying on the grass. It was lovely to see you all in the standing, very uh, freestyle interpretations of standing meditation. So this morning... And the sunshine, the grass, day, uh, communing with the daisies, and standing, and then standing, horizontal standing meditation. <laughs> there may be moments where we have some intimations of an extraordinarily, an extraordinary intimacy with life. There may we may have some scientific or intellectual understanding that we we are couldn't possibly be separate from life that we're every bit of us is a part of life is an expression of life and yet despite those moments where life seems exquisitely close intimate uh, one with us and despite what a kind of more philosophical kind of uh, looking at life will tell us, we feel ourselves, we take ourselves to be, our felt sense of ourselves is one of being separate from, cut off from, apart from life. Our sense of ourselves is of being an observer of life, of that life is something out here that I'm meeting negotiating with negotiating with with my body right it's like my body ends here and then life is out there with my heart that responds to life with my mind that thinks about life and so we could think of body heart and mind as organs of consciousness if you like and a sense then of that with these organs of consciousness Organs of consciousness means the, 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 the ways in which I experience life. Right? Bodily, emotionally, mentally. With these, these faculties, I engage with, negotiate with, experience life. So if our sense of fulfilment of longing for true rest, peace. Our longing for inclusion with life. Our longing for the end of our negotiation with, struggle with, conflict with. The end of that 
momentum of trying to get, have, do, become our fulfillment. If the end of that struggle is tied up with our set, the felt sense of being separate from life, then we should be very, very interested in how come we feel separate. What are the ways we feel separate? What are these organs of consciousness? Somebody wrote me a note today asking if I could clarify a little bit more after the, after the talk I gave last night about the difference between mind and heart. It's a good question. The Buddha used the the Pali word citta, which is translated sometimes as heart, sometimes as mind, or maybe more usefully as heart-mind, or mind-heart. So not really making a distinction. We can't find mind what we would call kind of mental qualities, we can't find them apart from heart, emotional qualities. We can't find apart from body, physical or sensory qualities. The Buddha often spoke, as well as using this word citta, spoke about the sense of ourselves as nama rupa, means name and form, that we construct a sense of ourselves as separate from life through experiencing form and naming it. So they're a kind of complex of, na- of, of perceiving form and naming it again and again. Internally, this form and the names I give it, the names I give my bodily experience, emotional experience, mental experience, and naming out a form. You. Of me and you, here and there, this and that. And we construct a whole sense of self around nama rupa, name and form. But, but what, what, what is it that we're naming again and again? What is it that we become so used to naming that we take it for granted and talk about rather easily, blithely, my mind? my body, my heart. What is mind? In hearing spiritual teachings, particularly maybe in hearing uh, teachings from a Buddhist background, one hears the talk of mind very, very often. And I was just recently listening to... uh, uh, an interview with Richard Shankman, an American teacher who's just written a book about a particular form of, uh, of concentration meditation. And as he used the word mind, he qualified it slightly. He said, I'm sorry to speak sloppily. He said, because I don't know what mind is. So when I use the word mind, I'm being a bit sloppy because I don't know what that is. I thought it was very refreshing. What a wonderful Ah, place to start. I don't know what mind is. And in fact, I would say for myself, after 20 years 
of practicing in this way, which we could call observing mind, cultivating presence of mind, I know a lot, lot less now about what mind is than I thought I knew 20 years ago. There's something in that not knowing what not knowing what mind is that brings an extraordinary freshness an extraordinary sense of mystery and of possibility what can emerge as mind when we don't presume to think I know my mind I know what my mind is what, what is mind Where do thoughts come from? If you'd like to have a go at answering that, please feel free. I'm very open to suggestions. Where do do thoughts come from? There's no right answer, so please don't feel uh, any pressure to get it right. But what, what does it seem to you? Where do thoughts come from? I don't know if you're shy or if you're struck by the realization that we really don't know. We might come up with all kinds of uh, ideas or they come from me. But where where we can actually through meditation we can we can notice the way a thought takes birth. We can notice the life cycle of a thought. We can notice the, um, the way thought starts to colour and shape consciousness. The way thought gives a certain seeming solidity to things. We can notice the way thought carries us off into some whole construction about things. People have been speaking today and we've been exploring in meditation the way thought kind of builds whole abstractions of our experience. We can observe the nature of thought with, as, as our skill and sensitivity deepens in meditation. We can observe thought with an extraordinary degree of um, clarity and insight. But we can't say very much about where thought comes from. So we talk, and as I did last night, in terms of mind and heart, a slightly artificial construct, right? In the way I've just explained, and yet, you know, there are the. It, it's nevertheless can be a useful distinction when talk about mind to point, at least as I was yesterday, to uh, qualities or capacities to describe, analyze. Reflect, discriminate. Whereas we might um, last night used the heart to refer more to a quality of emotional response to things. So those are kind of you know those have different flavors. Those two modes of uh, responding to life. And they're both very very important modes. And they're also modes that tend to get out of control 
tend to act out unconsciously. We've been seeing today how mind tends to act out unconsciously. Tends to take the lead. We give our capacity to reflect and analyse an extraordinary authority until it ends up almost completely running the show. And so the thought... um, How much longer till the bell rings, for example? The thought which we don't know where it comes from. Thought which we can notice. If there's a certain degree of steadiness and receptivity and spaciousness to our awareness, can notice just arises like that, briefly. It may have started with some discomfort in the leg. Discomfort, oh. And the discomfort gets projected in time. And builds a sense of how much longer. Certain kind of internal pressure going with that. The thought, oh, how much, how much longer till the bell rings? It's not really much different than the sound of the crow. The crows go like that. And our uh, poor, impoverished mind contracted in the moment by some discomfort in the, in the knee goes, I wonder what time then until the bell rings. And yet, and, and really, in, in, they, they certainly can, those can be experienced as extraordinarily similar phenomena. Both have a certain kind of vibrational frequency. Crow song and uh, this thought. They both arise, have their little expression and fade away again. And yet thought is a realm of vibrational phenomena which we give an extraordinary amount of authority to. So out of that little moment, I wonder how long, we can build a lot of abstraction. So much so that our whole sense of time can get distorted. 45 minutes can suddenly seem to last hours and hours. Because of that particular complex within us, the tendency to give thought out of all the other vibrational phenomena in our experience a huge amount of authority Because of that tendency, our practice is in some ways a way of um, counteracting that or of putting the emphasis on a different way of experiencing. Or in fact, to say that more more accurately, the emphasis on putting, put the emphasis on the fact of experiencing rather than just the content of experience. I'll, I'll say what I mean by that. When we get caught up in that thought, I wonder what the bell rings, we're locked into the content, right? The the thought and the authority we've given it. As we practice awareness, as we use the breath as, um, as a means to just reflect where we're at, where our mind is, what shape or structure it's taken on, 
what abstraction or obsession it may have gotten caught up in. As we do that, we're allowing for space around our experience. We're allowing ourselves to see a thought as a thought. Rather than having it imbued with the authority we've given it and then with our compulsion to do what the thought tells us. If our thinking life is let run wild, untrained, unexamined, unexplored, it, it holds us in a kind of tyranny. Basically saying, do this, do that. And we go, oh yes, okay, oh yes. So the thought arises in meditation, I wonder how much longer till the bell. And starting there, if we, if it, we haven't seen the thought just arrived as a, as a thought in reaction to some, some discomfort maybe, then we start to buy into that. Measuring the time, wondering how much longer, thinking about what we'd like to do afterwards, and basically suffering over that gap between where I am, where we always are, right? Right there. And where I think I want to be, where I think salvation lies, called when the bell rings. Now I wish it were true. If really, if I had that power to bestow salvation by ringing the bell, I'd be up here ringing it and ringing it and ringing it. So our capacity to reflect, discriminate, analyse, explain is really, really important one. But it serves us much, much better when it follows our, more, our direct experience rather than leading the way. Rather than serving our exploration of life, it tends to um, master us, driving us around. One of my teachers uh, in Thailand was once asked, how would you describe the world? And he said, lost in thought. Sometimes meditative traditions can end up seeming or in fact even being a bit anti-intellectual like thought is the enemy like there's something wrong with thought and all ought to be about feeling people are somehow always often saying about getting out of your head and into your body as if your head somehow isn't part of your body as if it's some uh, wrong thing hmm. wonderful faculty Capacity to think, to reflect. But much more useful, for at least in this kind of work. Right? If you're writing a shopping list, maybe let, let it lead. Let it take the lead. 
But in this kind of work, much more useful to us if it follows. If it follows uh, our embodied experience, our, um, what have we been, I've been calling it this morning, inhabiting of our experience. And as we let go of giving all that authority to thought, as we start to orientate towards and trust in what we're actually sensing, feeling, noticing, responding to, moment by moment, then inevitably we start to feel quite vulnerable to life. We start to feel transparent to the touch of life, which in certain moments can feel exquisite. An exquisite sense of uh, thinning of the, the sense of boundary between self and world. An exquisite sense of some dissolving of feeling apart from life. But vulnerability can also feel destabilizing, scary, disconcerting. It can feel like our familiar sense that might be cramped, might be lacking in fulfillment, might be feeling apart from the light from life but is nevertheless familiar and therefore seems to offer some sense of safety and protection that that familiar sense is getting shaken up some of you have mentioned uh, today and a couple of notes mentioning different um, different expressions of this kind of vulnerability Tears, anxiety, confusion. It's an interesting word, vulnerability, because it suggests an openness, a sensitivity, a receptivity. To be vulnerable is to be open, is to be receptive. The very qualities that uh, bring us closer to life. And yet, vulnerability also has strong associations for us of unsafety. Is that a word? Unsafety? No, insecurity. Unsafety too. Has connotations of feeling of being unprotected, exposed, in a way that can feel quite threatening. Our, we've usually, or we've all of us, got long, long, old, old impressions of vulnerability from our earliest experiences of feeling vulnerable as as an infant, as a child. And learning to um, find ways to protect ourselves. Whatever our family history, whatever our, our kind of background, whatever our story, whatever um, difficulties 
we may have faced or whatever the degree to which we felt we grew up in a, in a problematic environment or in a very loving and stable environment, there are ways in which as a child we are vulnerable. We are exposed. We are insecure. We are dependent on others for our uh, nurturing and safety and well-being. And inevitably there are times when our even pre-conscious, very young sense of self where our sense of our needs not being met are there. And so as we grow up, we, start, we experience vulnerability as something risky. And we learn, know, importantly, necessarily, we learn to cover our vulnerability, to hide our vulnerability, to armour our vulnerability, to protect ourselves against our vulnerability. So when, inevitably, for all of us, as our receptivity deepens, as our contact with life deepens, as we let go of living through the abstractions of, of our describing mind and start to feel things more immediately, more deeply, inevitably we hit places where we experience that as wobbly, scary, Vulnerable, destabilizing. There doesn't seem to be, I certainly don't know of any way around that. And yet, when we hit those places where we feel doubt, what's happening? Confusion, where we want to shrink, where we want to flee. A few people today in the group were speaking about wanting to just run away. Inevitably, there's a part of us that wants to shut down, that doesn't want to experience the the uh, experience vulnerability. And so we we get used to. Um, Living with a kind of manufactured strength. And it's important, I think, for us to get to know for ourselves, what's our manufactured strength? What are the ways we protect ourselves from vulnerability? For some of us, it's, it's building up a sense of capacity. I can do this, I can do that. Proving to ourselves, you know, acting in the world, be acting with others acting in all kinds of different situations as a way to prove to myself that I can. Prove to myself that I'm okay. I'm okay. Oh yes, I am okay. I am okay. I really am okay. Trying to kind of uh, remind ourselves so often that it might one day sink in and we might really fully believe it. Some of us we protect ourselves from a vulner- from vulnerability in just the opposite way by feeling deficient by feeling a lack of, a lack of capacity and that that feels safe and secure and if we feel in some way empowered or able that feels so unusual and so scary that that makes us feel exposed and vulnerable we have to see for ourselves what is it that threatens our sense of being able to manage because whatever it is that threatens our own sense, it's a clue for us. 
It's a clue for us to notice the tendency to shut down, the tendency to want to go to the familiar, the secure. And an opportunity to see, can we stay vulnerable there? Some of us, our vulnerability comes out in contact with others. But for some of us, we know how to kind of manufacture a sense of security with others and our vulnerability comes out much more in being alone. For some of us, our vulnerability may come out in feeling unloved. And similarly for others, our vulnerability may come out in feeling loved. It's too much attention. It challenges us, sent us uh, uh, some aspect of how we take ourselves to be. This this practice. Well, I don't just mean meditation practice. I mean this whole body of exploring life. Contemplating these organs of consciousness, our mental responses, emotional responses, physical responses to life, what it means to be alive and conscious. This whole path of practice is about being more and more vulnerable. You might notice if you have that kind of reaction. You might say something about your beliefs around vulnerability. More and more vulnerable means more and more receptive. More and more sensitive. More and more transparent. More and more included in life. More and more a natural sense of that this is life expressing. Life expressing as mental responses, emotional responses, physical responses. More and more intimacy with life. But inevitably, part of that or not just part, but again and again, as we meet different layers of our vulnerability, again and again we meet the fear and wanting to shut down that goes with it. And so it can feel like, sometimes, it can feel like we're going into somewhere Dangerous, somewhere scary. This, in the uh, inner territory, somewhere where our familiar sense of self gets shaken up, gets challenged, gets dissolved, maybe. And the invitation and the challenge of that is to see if we can hold both pieces: the deepening into what's happening, and recognizing that part of us wants to freak out, part of us wants to shut down, part of us doesn't want to open, part of us says, 
never mind spiritual, you know, I want out of here. What we're doing in these days, what we've been doing today, is both simultaneously withdrawing again and again from the content of the way our minds get caught up so as to create some space to allow us to drop in, to drop in, to drop in more and more deeply to what we're experiencing. And at the same time, learning not to just... um, Learning the skill, learning skill around the way our mind um, reacts, revolts. And those aspects are really what serve us in deepening our vulnerability. Learning to drop in, to stay steady to abide with what's happening and learning to not get just caught up in the kind of um, the kind of knee jerk reaction of wanting to flee so it's normal it's normal to want to flee Somebody said in the group today how relieving it was to hear that other people wanted to run away too. So in some way, maybe that's why I'm saying it now. To normalise the reaction that wants to flee. It's hard. Beautiful and exquisite in moments. But it's hard to really face our life honestly, directly, nakedly some people have been here before some of the people sitting at the back have been here for months on personal retreat and sometimes when we come regularly to a place like this or when we stay a long time we can kind of find a way to get comfortable within the schedule. We can find a way, we can get through 45 minutes of meditation. It's never too long until the next meal. You know, we can find some degree of uh, managing the schedule without too much, what? Too much discomfort? Too much vulnerability? We find a way to stay secure in some familiar sense of ourselves while appearing to do our practice. But lovely though Gaia House is, beautiful gardens, good lunch, central heating, it's not really here for us to get comfortable. It's here to keep us on our toes, as it were. It's here to invite us again and again to the edge of our comfort. It's here to invite us more and more into vulnerability. 
not knowing what this is. Not knowing who I am. What this mind is. What this heart is. What this body is. Scary in moments. And yet, in that not knowing, in that willingness to open and be vulnerable, the possibility for a real transformation, the possibility for closing the gap between ourselves and life. To be vulnerable, to abandon our constructed strength, our familiar sense of how to manage, is to let life in, to let life into us, through us, to, be, to have our own presence informed by life, revealed in life, animated by life. This mind is life, thinking, responding, reflecting. This heart is life, feeling. This body is life, expressing. The deeper we know that, the less far away we feel from life, the less cut off we feel from fulfilment. So this is a practice, we could say, of vulnerability that invites us into and points us towards complete vulnerability. And this is a practice of meeting life that invites us into a complete Inclusion in life. Complete fulfillment. Nothing missing. Nothing apart. Nothing to be, to feel cut off from. And therefore nothing to need to get or have. That's what the Buddha called the sure heart's release. And then, and there, out of the out of fulfillment, mind, heart, body, acting in the world, responding to the world, meeting others. If our time here is in the service of dissolving the gap with life, in the service of fulfilling our human longing, in the service of meeting life freely, then it's a truly beautiful opportunity for each one of us. 
May it be so. For each one of us and for all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.